So in the early days, we did a lot of the consumer convergence plays, uh, and we still like some of those. But over the last few years, technology has really changed the opportunity set in a big way across every sector. In some ways, you know, EM investing is moving more into our wheelhouse of, of the way we've, we've thought about investing in growth companies at SANS. Welcome to Distinctively Active Investing, Profiles and Perspectives presented by Touchstone Investments. I'm Steve Graziano, President of Touchstone, and on this show, you'll find out what makes Touchstone, its leaders, and its portfolio managers distinctive. We'll share in-depth interviews with the people who are actively engaged in leading and managing the Touchstone funds. I'm Ben Algy, Divisional Vice President here at Touchstone Investments. Our guest today is Ashraf Hawk, Co-Portfolio Manager for the Touchstone Sands Capital Emerging Markets Growth Fund. Sands Capital Management is the fund's sub-advisor. Today, we'll learn about Sands Capital's investment philosophy, and we will delve into Ashraf's personal journey as well. Thanks for being with us. Ashraf, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the investment business? So I've wanted to do investing since I was in college. Uh, and when I was in college, uh, the there was a Yahoo Fantasy stock market game. It's kind of like fantasy football for stock geeks. Um, and I started playing that. And this was during the first dot-com uh, boom and then burst. And since I was a college student, just you know, between classes, I actually kind of figured out how to game the system and how to buy IPOs and flip them. Uh, and for a while, I was on the kind of national leaderboard uh, amongst several hundred thousand people. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but I didn't really understand how, how the markets worked. Um, and at that time, I couldn't really find an investment gig. So I spent the next uh, three or four years building what I thought was a toolkit to become an investor. I took a quarter off of school and spent half a year at investment banking, learning how to do models and read balance sheets and income statements and things like that. And then ultimately, when I graduated, I joined a startup that was focused on management assessment and evaluation. Uh, spent two years there, and then I went to McKinsey for two years to do strategy consulting, just to figure out, you know, how businesses worked, what made a great business, what differentiated a great business from a bad business. Uh, so, with those three experiences of a startup, a small business, of a, a large Wall Street investment bank, and uh, two years of strategy consulting, I went to business school explicitly to move into investing. And I did some internships along the way. Um, but that that was really the start of uh, the investment business for me. So there you are at grad school and really have a passion for the investment business. How did you come to find yourself at Sands Capital? Sure. So in the, in the mid-2000s, hedge funds were all the rage. And I was just like every other investor. I interned at a large hedge fund in Chicago, where I'm from. I ultimately ended up taking a job at a hedge fund in in the mid-Atlantic, uh, that was a merger ARB hedge fund. And, you know, I didn't really enjoy what I was doing there once I got there. And it turns out that uh, I didn't do a good job of sort of aligning what I wanted to do with my philosophy. So within a year, I was looking for something that was more in line with my temperament and my philosophy. And in 08, I, uh, spring, summer of 08, I interviewed with Frank uh, six or seven times, Frank Sands. And, you know, I really liked the philosophy of concentration in the long-term horizon. Those are things that I saw in my own investment style that I'd done in, in my PA. And, you know, growth versus value, I didn't really have a strong view at that time, but I've, uh, I've grown to love growth investing since then. Um, and I really liked the idea of a boutique firm where I could go in, understand what, what they were doing, and where I could have a lot of impact. Uh, so that's how I ended up at Sands in, in the fall of 08. 
You talked a little bit about the growth and value dichotomy. What is it about growth stock investing that you find so appealing or, or interesting? Well, growth investing is a forward-looking exercise. The, the best analogy I give uh, to folks is if you're looking at a house that you know costs a hundred bucks, value investing is saying, "Look, that house is really worth two hundred bucks when the neighborhood improves and uh, when I can make some fixes to it." Growth investing is saying, "Look, the, the house is selling for two hundred bucks, but because of all these things I see in the, in the environment, I actually think it's going to be worth a thousand five years from now." So they're both the same at the core, trying to buy things that are cheaper today and will be worth a lot more in the future. But growth uh, investing, in my mind, is a little bit more of a creative exercise, a little bit more of a forward-looking exercise. And it's, I think, a lot harder to do. Uh, and most of the things that I grew up reading about investing tend to be about value investors. We all grew up reading you know, Buffett and, 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 uh, and Graham and Dodd, and value investing is all you ever hear about. Um, and a lot of those same principles apply to what we do, uh, but you know, this is much more what's going to happen with businesses three or five years from now. How, how is the world changing to the future, and how can I uh, under, understand that and, and take advantage of that? So you start out at Sands Capital as a research analyst in 2008. And you eventually worked your way up to portfolio manager of the emerging markets equity strategy. What was it about the emerging markets that you found so attractive? Sands had just a U.S. growth strategy in 2008 when I joined, and then we just launched a global strategy in 2009. Uh, and EM was an exciting, untouched area to go looking for ideas and to to learn about the world. Uh, but it's also where you had to really dig in to understand the future of Starbucks, which I took over coverage of in 08, and Nike, uh, which I recommended uh, into our portfolios in 2009. So a lot of my early travels to these countries was just to do a good job being a U.S. analyst and a, and a global consumer analyst. So I was putting consumer ideas into our uh, our global fund, which has had a 20 to 25% uh, emerging market uh, allocation since inception. And consumer leads itself really well to emerging markets. So I was you know, one of the early guys at Sands to focus on it. Uh, I led some of our first investments in India and China and, and first trips to Russia to look at businesses. Uh, and as we saw more and more businesses, uh, you know, I bounced the idea of launching an EM fund to Frank Sands, and uh, we found two other like-minded analysts in, in Neil and uh, Kansari and Brian Christensen, who to this day are my co-PMs. And the three of us got to working on it together um, in t 2011 and 2012. Uh, now, mind you, we were still analysts putting ideas into global and U.S., uh, so this was a, a lot of nights and weekends where uh, we would do research on companies. We had an ongoing Saturday morning conference call for a full year where we vetted ideas. Uh, and then we launched the strategy together in 2013. So today we have a seven-year and a quarter track record. And the big insight we had back then was, you know, the old way of doing EM investing, which is macro top-down, let me pick the best countries and then let me buy the biggest stocks uh, in those countries. That way of EM investing was probably not going to work. And our approach of identifying fantastic growth franchises might be a better way. So in the early days, we did a lot of the consumer convergence plays, uh, and we still like some of those. But over the last few years, technology has really changed the opportunity set in a big way across every sector. In some ways, you know, EM investing is moving more into our wheelhouse of, of the way we've, we've thought about investing in growth companies at Sands. Let's talk about EM innovation. What kinds of innovation are you seeing in the emerging markets? Yeah. So every uh, EM investor knows the middle class rising story. And we certainly appreciate that as people move to cities, they get wealthier and, and people move up some very 
predictable consumption curve. So that that backdrop is still there, and we're still looking at those businesses. But the biggest change that's happened is that every company has become a tech company. And we, we see that in the United States, we see that in Europe, and we certainly see that in EM. So there's obvious stuff happening in e-commerce, in gaming, in search, and we have plenty of exposure to that. But even areas like food delivery and travel and payments uh, are all being impacted by innovation and technology-driven innovation. So just to give you a couple examples, we own a business in India called Bajaj Finance, which is a lending business for consumer durables. So if someone wants to buy a smartphone or an air conditioner or refrigerator and they want to make installment payments over 10 months, Bajaj will offer you 0% interest on that. So that's not that innovative, but the way they make the loan is really innovative. You go uh, to their lending desk, which is in the back of the store, uh, and the consumer scans uh, their thumbprint. And within minutes, that thumbprint is connected to what's called the India stack, which is a technology infrastructure that the Indian government has built that has credit records and uh, all, all your billing history, a lot of uh, information about you, about your job and things like that. And Bajaj can access certain parts of it that you authorize and can make a decision on whether to make you a loan or not within a, a couple of minutes. That type of innovation allows them to make loans faster and approve and, and lend to much better credits than they could in the past using traditional methods. Uh, another thing we're seeing is how uh, there's a leapfrogging happening in payments. So in China, the consumer skipped from cash, to, uh, they skipped credit cards altogether. They went from cash to QR code payments using tools like Alipay. And once a consumer has an Alipay account, not only can they pay bills or buy vegetables or whatever, or transfer money, but they can also invest in money market funds and mutual funds and buy insurance and take care of all sorts of other financial needs uh, that they might have. Uh, and so the key theme between both of those is uh, this idea of leapfrogging, uh, where in the US, you know, my credit card works just fine. So for me to adopt a QR code payment is, is more of a pain than anything. But in, you know, in China and in India, the legacy infrastructure isn't there. So it allows room for some of these innovative leapfrog technologies, both business technologies like the Bajaj Finance example I gave or consumer facing technologies uh, like Alipay to really flourish. So Ashraf, it would appear that you've spent a lot of time in China over the past decade, given some of the businesses you own there today. Can you talk a bit about China and how it has evolved over the last decade to become such an economic powerhouse? China has been emerging as a powerhouse for over 40 years now. And in that process, they've lifted uh, 500 million people out of poverty. But the real shift you've seen over the last decade is that China's domestic market is becoming large enough to really matter. It used to be that China's economy was driven by exports to the US, to Europe, uh, and driven by fixed asset investments that the government was making to build roads and bridges and airports. Now, there are something like 400 million millennials in China, and they matter a lot more to the Chinese economy than exporting to American consumers. And that's led to a certain confidence for Chinese leaders and consumers and businesses. And we're starting to see an era where you know the world has taken notice, and it's likely going to become a lot more combative towards China. Uh, and I think that's just going to further emphasize the importance of the domestic economy and China's regional ambitions and, and sphere of influence. Uh, so that's really what's happened over the last decade. That's that's new uh, for us as global EM investors. You know, we're seeing great businesses going after this opportunity in e-commerce, in gaming and athletic footwear, after-school tutoring, biotech. And uh, the biggest of that is Alibaba, which we've owned since the IPO. And it, it kind of highlights the SANS process. We got to know that business for 
well over a year before they went public uh, through lots of meetings with the company, through talking to different parts of the ecosystem, talking to consumers, doing surveys. Uh, our analysts actually went and lived in China for six months uh, because we saw a wave of these Chinese e-commerce companies coming. So, uh, you know, he really wanted to get immersed in that. And that gave us the confidence to uh, take down was probably the largest allocation to any U.S. fund um, in across not just EM but across our U.S. global and, and emerging market funds uh, when the IPO happened five years ago. Can you share more about where you believe there are pockets of innovation in the emerging markets? Another big area of focus for us is Southeast Asia or ASEAN. Uh, these are the countries of Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam. Together, these six or seven countries account for almost 600 million people. We have a 15% weight in that region, so it's almost getting to the size of our Indian allocation. Uh, and some of these economies are quite advanced, like Thailand, and some of them are just emerging, like Vietnam. We found interesting businesses, uh, maybe one or two in each of these economies so far. Our largest allocation is a business called C Limited, which is a gaming company that's uh, based in Singapore, but its biggest markets are these Southeast Asian countries I just talked about. Uh, so when uh, FIFA wants to launch into Southeast Asia or when Tencent wants to launch its games into this region, uh, they have to partner with C Limited to distribute those games. And Tencent actually owns about a third of C. Their other business, which is really undervalued by the market, is their e-commerce business. They're now the leading e-commerce company across all of these countries. Uh, and they actually have overtaken uh, a company that Alibaba owns called Lazada uh, to become the leader. And they did that by focusing on categories that were stickier, like, uh, like fashion, like cosmetics, like home goods, and providing both sellers and buyers a better mobile-first um, ex buying experience and selling experience. We, again, this is another company that we took our global expertise in e-commerce and experience in e-commerce and got an all allocation in the IPO, and we've owned it since. And it's become a big weight across uh, several SANS strategies recently. So looking at frontier markets, can you spend some time on frontier market equities and any potential opportunities you believe may be in frontier markets? We've always maintained exposure to frontier markets. It's usually been between 5 to 10% of the portfolio. And our mandate is broad. It's anything that's outside of developed markets. In the past, we've owned businesses in Saudi and Jordan. Uh, today, we own a Cambodian casino. We own a shopping mall in Vietnam. And a we own a couple of businesses in Argentina, which has now, again, been classified as a frontier market by MSCI. The, an interesting one to highlight might be Vietnam. It's, a, it's an economy that is benefiting from uh, global supply chains shifting away from China. So you look at these emerging markets and frontier market equities. What does the final portfolio look like once it's constructed? Once we do a lot of the work picking the businesses, you know, there's a there's a process of going from a pile of businesses to a portfolio that represents our, our best views. Part of that is sorting out the portfolio into what are our, our highest conviction ideas. And those tend to be ones with very really large addressable markets, very strong leadership positions, great management teams, compelling valuation. And those tend to be what we call our large weights, large bucket weights. And those are 3% and, and higher. Today, the top 10 in the portfolio is about 55% of the portfolio. So getting those top 10 right is a big part of my job as a, as a PM. The next, call it 40% of the portfolio, is clustered in the next 20 businesses. And these are great franchises that we think we can own for five years or, or longer. But maybe they, for whatever reason, they're, 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 they're in a more fragmented market or their macro is not quite as compelling. The valuation may be a little elevated. We keep those at, at in, the, in the middle of the portfolio. And we're always asking which of those 
are going to be the next set of top 10 businesses. And at the bottom of the portfolio, we have a few businesses that are either on the way in or the way out um, or are just not liquid enough to own at a big weight as, as the strategy continues to scale up. Within that exercise of portfolio construction, we have to keep in mind that we have a very low turnover approach. We may be buying five or six businesses a, a year. Uh, our turnover has averaged about 20% since the strategy started, and um, that's the same for all SAN strategies. And the reason for that is, you know, we, we buy businesses to own them for at least five years. And if we get it right, we want to own it for much longer. And our basic view is that exceptional businesses don't get created that often and they don't come in and out of the portfolios that often. What sets SANS capital apart from your emerging market equity competitors? What do you consider that investment edge? I think there's three sources of edge that we have, and they all align with our philosophy. Uh, so they're core to every strategy at SANS. The first is we look for exceptional growth businesses. And the reason why I believe that's a source of edge is that most people think that businesses uh, and most businesses do revert to the mean. There's very few businesses out there that can grow for much longer than people expect or can be much bigger in a nonlinear growth fashion than most people expect. And our entire investment process is geared towards identifying those. If that's not your focus, you're going to miss those. And so I would say looking for exceptional growth businesses is our first source of edge. The second source of edge is conviction-weighted portfolios of our best ideas. So you may find great businesses, but then you know you diversify that edge away by owning lots of crappy or mediocre businesses. We don't do that. We say uh, we're going to own a lot, uh, big weights in, in these great businesses. In our U.S. strategy, it's 25 to 30 businesses. In our global and EM strategies, it's anywhere between 35 and 40 businesses. Today, it's 37 in the emerging markets growth portfolio. And we own, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we own them in big weights. Uh, our biggest weights can be 10, 11% weights. Uh, and our top 10 is 55% of the portfolio today. And the third part, uh, the third source of edge is uh, our long-term horizon. A lot of people identify great businesses, but then at the first source of, at the first sign of volatility, they'll run for the hills. When we do the deep work that I talked about earlier to gain conviction, that enables us to stay invested during periods of volatility. When others are running for the hills and we have a great business, we're often buying more of that business. Uh, and so that long-term horizon is a really important part of, of delivering alpha along with the other two points I just mentioned. Looking at your investment team, they're all based in Arlington, Virginia, uh, and a lot of emerging market equity research teams have people all over the world. How does SANS Capital think about one location versus different people in different countries? We made a very deliberate call to all be based in D.C., and we, ta uh, we travel a ton all over the world, but uh, we thought it was important to stay here. And the reason why is um, we, we prioritize business model expertise over having a, you know, a, a local presence on the ground in Brazil. And we've seen this play out over and over again. For the investor who's, who's based in Brazil, uh, who's covering Mercado Libre, they're probably a generalist or a consumer analyst. They've never seen anything like that. We have lived and succeeded and sometimes failed investing in companies like that over years and years and years in many different geographies. So business model expertise really matters a lot. And we supplement that with a lot of on the ground time traveling and meeting with management teams, talking to consumers, talking to suppliers. And the other aspect of this is we've over time built a team of folks who are very comfortable in these markets. Some of them are natives that, who grew up in those countries who've immigrated to the United States. Uh, some of them sp speak the language, so we have those capabilities as well. So we believe for our investment style, which is looking for 
great franchises to own for long periods of time, this works for us. If we were a short-term uh, kind of high turnover manager where we, where we needed to be plugged into the news flow or the latest kind of market whispers, it might not work as, as well as, as it does. Uh, but it's the right uh, approach, we believe, for, for our, our style of investing. So emerging market equity investing is sometimes considered, quote unquote, risky. And growth equity investing can be considered risky as well. Sands Capital is putting those two things together. How do you think about that in a risk framework? I think our approach to this is if you buy great businesses and you do the work up front to identify what makes them great, you build conviction in them, you can own them for a long period of time. Uh, what we've seen is when markets are selling off, and, and emerging markets certainly has been a very tough place to be for the last 10 years, and it, it probably will remain a tough place to be, it pays to be very selective, and it pays to know the businesses really well. What we've seen in market sell-offs is that our businesses, which tend to be these higher quality businesses, tend to hang in there much better. Uh, so our performance on the downside is, 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 is quite strong. There are times when this style won't work, and we have experienced a couple of those. But our bet is that those will be short-lived versus you know, this focus on domestic demand, which I've been talking about uh, as the real wealth creator. We believe that's going to be the real long-term story in EM. So the short-term blips that, that, that happened, for example, in 2016, when there's a big commodity rally or a big value rally, uh, we don't chase that stuff. We don't know how to do that stuff. We may be underperforming during those periods. But the bet we've made is that there's gonna, not going to be uh, any buyers of commodity on the scale of China uh, to really make commodities a investable um, part of EM anymore in a structural way. So that's why we think the EM story has really shifted to this more domestic demand story. Our approach of identifying the best of those, I think, is what allows us to, to uh, outperform. So all investment styles have headwinds and tailwinds. When would your growth equity style typically be in favor in emerging markets? And when are you more likely to have style headwinds? I think the strategy works when uh, the macro is neutral or in even a little when the macro is a little nervous. It doesn't uh, when, when the U.S. dollar is is the safe haven uh, for investors. Emerging markets tends to get sold off, and we have a long only fully invested portfolio, so we're going to sell off as well. Although we we tend to hang in there better uh, in these sell offs because of the quality of our businesses. When investors are fleeing EM, some are just hitting the exit button altogether, but some are saying. Look, look, I want to get out of the crappy state-owned uh, enterprises in Brazil and Russia. I want to get out of the Chinese banks because that's where my risk is higher. And I want to go into Tencent and Baba and these type of, uh, you know, the great Indian franchises that we own. Uh, so we found that on the downside, we tend to do quite well. And then, you know, when there's not a big uh, macro story, when it's just stock picking matters, we tend to do quite well. When a environment where we won't do so well is if you see a the oil price go from twenty bucks or or whatever it is today, fifteen bucks to, to you know seventy in a very short period of time, because that will lead to some of these energy companies quadrupling within a very short amount of time. And even though they're a much smaller part of the benchmark than they were in 13, 14, 15, given that we have zero exposure to those, we may we may underperform there. Let's talk about ESG for a minute. How does Sands Capital incorporate ESG into its investment process? 
ESG has been uh, a really hot topic with investors, and we had the fortune of working with Australian and European clients who were five years ahead of most American investors in this respect. So we had to kind of build this muscle up uh, back then. And uh, some parts of ESG, like governance, have always been part of our process, making sure that we uh, don't own these state-owned enterprises, that we uh, invest in professionally managed or entrepreneurially driven uh, companies, in that you know that the boards are stacked in, in, in the favor of minority shareholders as opposed to just to steal money from the company, which is something you see a lot in emerging markets. So the G part of ESG has been a big part of what, of what we've done. Uh, now we've become more explicit about the E and the S part. Uh, on the environmental part, it's not really an issue for us, given that we don't do much energy or commodities. Of course, there are some second order issues. Our apparel companies are talking about things like water waste, and we're helping them with those discussions. Uh, social is really about work uh, treatment of your workforce and paying wages and things like that. Our general approach with ESG is that we're trying to be active owners of our businesses. What that means is you know, we have an important seat at the table. We tend to be large shareholders and we tend to be long-term shareholders. So our companies often are looking to us to say, hey, you guys are in the US, you do global investing. What are you seeing that I can incorporate into my process in India or China or, 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 or Brazil? And we're happy to consult or give advice to our companies where it makes sense. What we're not doing is, is we're not activists. We're not buying bad companies to turn them around with with better governance tools. Um, but I think this active owner approach uh, is, is, is a fine one, and it gives us a really important voice at the table. Looking back over the last decade or so, what are some of the biggest changes in the investment business that you've seen in your career? I think the the couple of trends that I've picked up on are uh, you know the bigger getting bigger and scale is winning out. Uh, that's certainly happening as as larger asset managers tend to buy others and get get even bigger. The sell side is getting decimated as a business, uh, so the value of stock pickers who can find the next great business is increasing. I think the list of companies that are covered by sell side, uh, it's narrowing in the United States. And once you get out of the United States, it gets very thin, very fast. Uh, so I think active ownership and, uh, and active stock picking can really pay off there. So for a, bit, a boutique like ours to thrive, uh, you know, we need a clear philosophy, great people to execute on it. Of course, investment results to back it all up. Uh, today, we're about $5 billion in emerging markets growth. As we get to seven, eight, nine, ten billion, we'll start thinking about uh, soft closing it. But uh, one thing I will say about capacity is that in EM, it's very dynamic. We've seen many more companies come to the public market. So uh, we don't want to get to uh, become a um, you know a behemoth that has to buy Volley and Petrobras. But at the same time, uh, we think the strategy has plenty of room to scale. So Ashraf, let's talk about the future. Over the next 10 years, what do you believe the biggest trends will be that are going to drive market performance? So we're not big macro thinkers. Uh, for us, the answer will always be the same, like it's been for 25 years. It starts with finding great businesses. Um, but of course, you know, I, I, we read about the markets and we're active participants. I think one big thing we're trying to get our heads around is uh, the role of central banks and the, the fiscal and monetary policy that's merging. It's something that we've seen in emerging markets for a long time, but we may start seeing that in the developed world. Uh, in, in many ways, central banks are becoming very important players in developed markets, uh, like they have always been in emerging markets. So that's an interesting kind of new, new thing that we're trying to get our heads around. And I guess another thing we're working through is, you know, if the story of the last 10 years has been the rise of passive, it's going to be really interesting to see how that changes when there's a big market correction, because 
passive tends to uh, amplify whatever direction that you're going in. So in up markets, you know, the passive trend continues to get bigger. But in down markets, you may see a rush to the exits as some of these big strategies start to underperform. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see if, you know, active management gets back into in favor uh, over the next 10 years. What advice would you give to someone getting into the investment business today? It's a great business, but it's a really hard business as well. There's a lot of luck involved in addition to some skill. Um, I would say for someone uh, who's outside and trying to get in, you know, demonstrate your genuine interest. If you're in college, uh, clubs, investment clubs, get involved with them. Uh, if you're out of college, take the CFA. That's a great way to show that you're dedicated. That's a hard road to take. You know, read the right books write up investment cases. Um, there's a lot of forums out there now that weren't around when I was trying to play the Yahoo stock market game, uh, you know, seeking alpha or some zero where you can kind of publish your your investment write-ups and get feedback on them. Uh, so it, it, when I look at a candidate, uh, everyone wants to be, who I talk to wants to be in the investment business, but what separates the folks who we go deeper with are those who can demonstrate their genuine interest in investing. You talked about active management. Why does active management matter going forward? Well, especially in emerging markets, I think emerging markets, as I mentioned, has been tough for a while, and it's going to be tough. Uh, many emerging markets, emerging markets is evolving as an asset class. I think emerging markets uh, over the next five, 10 years is going to be a lot about China and maybe India and then everybody else. Uh, the whole the whole BRIC story that was a big part of EM you know, 10 years ago has fallen off. Uh, Brazil is a basket case. Russia is a basket case. And I, I don't think they're going to be big parts of anyone's portfolio. Uh, all that leads me to the view that being very selective matters and uh, being able to pick your spots, being able to avoid most of it, that matters. And to me, that's an active management setup. Uh, it's hard to do that uh, passively, even if you buy country ETFs. Within a country, there's a huge variety of businesses. Within the U.S., you can buy a sector ETF or you can buy ETFs that are a little bit more targeted and more nuanced. But in EM, uh, there is no other way to go besides being active. So, Ashraf, what keeps you up at night work-wise? <laughs> Not a lot work-wise, but you know, I think a little bit about the, the U.S.-China relationship. And I think about my position and our firm's position uh, as, you know, global and EM investors sitting out of Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, if the U.S.-China relationship becomes really toxic, there are some scenarios where, you know, U.S. investors may have to reconsider. I mean, there were talks from the Trump administration a few, you know, last year, it's coming to the surface again of potentially banning Chinese ADRs from, from U.S. markets. Uh, I think, uh, you know, that could really damage uh, the credibility of U.S. capital markets. Um, of course, we would have to respond to that, and we would probably figure out a way around it. Something like Alibaba, our biggest position, you know, is also listed in Hong Kong. So we would that's an easy one. But in general, um, it's things like that that probably keep me up a little bit more. You know, Again, being very long-term, monthly performance or daily performance don't really bother me that much. We're in this for the long game, and I think we have a great philosophy team and process to execute on. What are your hobbies outside of work? Yeah, for the last few years, I've been um, I play I play basketball. I've been playing it my entire life, and you know now that I'm over forty, I play in a forty and over uh, league Sunday nights, and and that's my favorite thing to do. Um, I really don't like working out, but that's the the most activity I get, which I really enjoy. Um, I read a ton. Um, I read a lot of fiction because most of my days spent reading research reports and notes from my team. So I, I, I tend to read a lot of fiction, a lot of historical fiction. 
Um, during the COVID lockdown, you know, I've picked up some new hobbies with my kids, you know, doing lots of puzzles and games. Uh, we uh, are doing movie marathons and, uh, you know, do, doing uh, Settlers of Catan and, and, and uh, you know, a new puzzle every week. So those are some of the things I'm spending my time on outside of work right now. If you weren't in the investment business, what do you think you'd be doing? I think I might be a teacher. My my father is a teacher. I come from a long uh, family of uh, teachers. Uh, my my father, all three of my sisters have have, have done stints teaching. I really like taking complex concepts and kind of breaking them down into simpler bits. I've never pursued it in a meaningful way, but I think that could be pretty rewarding. So Ashraf, what book are you reading right now? So I read a lot. I read a lot of historical fiction. Um, I read a lot of science fiction. Currently, I'm reading a book called The Three-Body Problem. Uh, it's a Chinese science fiction uh, series. It's been translated into English. I don't read Chinese, uh, but it's fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. It's about. It's a futurist book about the human race contacting a, a, uh, a, a an alien civilization that's coming to the to earth 400 years to the future and how will earth prepare to defend itself from this uh, from this invasion um, the last good investing book I've read uh, was called uh, a man for all markets by Ed Thorpe he's the father of quant investing it's a totally different type of investing than what we do at sands but you know I'm a I, I like invest. I like investing very broadly, and I really like reading about uh, some of the pioneers. and And that's a fantastic book uh, from uh, what many, who many consider the father of quant investing. Lots of leaders have daily routines to keep them at their best and stay focused. Do you have anything like that in your daily routine? You know, I'm always jealous of the business leader who who runs eight miles at six a.m. That's just not who I am. Uh, honestly, my kids who are twelve, eight, and seven are. Uh, kind of the most important thing in my life, and they determine a lot of my routines. My faith also determines a lot of what I do and my routines, including pausing uh, in the middle of the day to pray and, and be grateful for everything I have. Uh, those are probably the things that uh, I think determine my routine and have for the last decade and probably will for the next decade. Uh, maybe when I'm a little older, I can get on the running at 6 a.m. train. <laughs> what is the most interesting place in the world you've ever visited? One of the privileges or benefits of my job is that you know you know we get to travel a ton and I enjoy traveling. Probably the the most interesting place I've been to was my first trip to China, which happened uh, well over a decade ago. And not Beijing or Shanghai, but going to a what was considered a tier five city in, in China called Fuling. Uh, I had read about this place in a book called River Town by Peter Hessler, which was one of the first Chinese Ch China focused books I read. And this is a, a town that's downriver from the Three Gorges Dam, which is one of the largest dam projects in the world. And the book was about how the town was going to deal with being flooded over. Um, so I actually went and visited this town with a couple of my colleagues. Um, and uh, the couple of the amazing things about it to me were uh, a tier five city in China, even 10 years ago, the level of development I saw there, the roads, the buildings, the markets were so far above and beyond anything I've seen in India or any other emerging markets that uh, to me, it was a huge eye opener of the power of China. It's been a theme that we've touched on a lot in, 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 the, in the conversation today. Uh, but that was 10 years ago in a tier five city. Imagine what um, a tier one city in China is doing now in terms of its its progress and, and the distance it's put its, between itself and, and a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, so that's probably one of the, my favorite memories from traveling. Thanks to Ashraf for sharing his insights today into Sands Capital's investment process, as well as his personal interests and background. Until next time, I'm Ben Algy. Thank you for listening to Distinctively Active Investing. You can find the resources mentioned in the episode and learn all about Touchstone Active Managers at www.touchstoneinvestments.com.
If you like the show, please share it with someone you know. We appreciate when you subscribe to the show and take the time to leave us a rating and review. Find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Steve Graziano. From all of us at Touchstone Investments, thank you for listening. As of June 30, 2020, C Limited made up 9.44%, Tencent Holdings Limited made up 9.85%, Bajaj Finance Limited made up 2.69%, Alibaba Holding Group Limited made up 9.32%, Mercado Libre made up 6.74%, and Yahoo Inc., Starbucks Corporation, Nike Inc., Alipay, Lazada Group, Vale SA and Petróleo Brasileiro SA made up 0.00% of the Touchstone Sands Capital Emerging Markets Growth Fund. Current and future portfolio holdings are subject to change. Alpha is the portion of a fund's total return that is unique to that fund and is independent of movements in the benchmark. Investment return and principal value of an investment in a fund will fluctuate so that investors' shares, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. All investing involves risk. Performance data quoted is past performance, which is no guarantee of future results. The information provided is for general information purposes and is not investment advice. Opinions may change without notice based on economic, market, business, and other conditions. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities, Inc., a member FINRA and SIPC.